It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Welcome back to The Green Rush, the business of cannabis. I'm your host, Josh Kincaid with The Talking Hedge, Cannabis Business Podcast. We're on part two. We've got a great panel. We've got Sarah Chase, Executive Director for the Council of Federal Cannabis Regulation, and Michael May, CEO of Quantum Nine. Panelists, thanks for being with us at uh, Green Rush. Thank you, Josh. It's great to great to be here. Hi, Michael. How's it going, Sarah? It's nice to uh, nice to be included as well. Yeah, appreciate you guys being here. Um, just jumping right in, I want to talk about. Um, I, I I think this one's going to be for Sarah being regulations and talk about social equity and, and how it relates, I guess, to the cannabis industry. We're seeing that psychedelics still illegal under the U.S. federal law and keeping in with the long time U.S. war on drugs. But we're seeing venture capitalists and investors, Silicon Valley tech bros, big pharma, all these players currently racing to pound down the doors of the perception into the realm of de- decriminalized de- um, the psychedelic industry. And we're seeing a lot of um, capital coming through, bringing that to a reality. But will the psychedelic industry follow the cannabis industry in trying to prioritize a social equity program for those most affected by the war on drugs? Or will that not apply to psychedelics? That's so a very that's- good question. Yeah, I, I, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head here because cannabis historically has a stigma um uh, with with black and brown people and you have the the a very long history with the war on drugs um and it's created an environment where social equity and and decriminalization and and legalization of cannabis sort of do walk hand in hand um that's not quite the same with the psychedelic industry um yes there's a stigma around it but um i hate to use this term it's it's sort of been the white person's drug of choice for a long time so you don't have the the same rates of incarceration you don't have the same level of of inequity that's that's been um brought about because of this and you don't necessarily have the same kind of um legacy markets that that grew up around this industry because it's it's primarily a a, a synthesized or a chemical version um outside of the worlds of 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 fungus and mushroom too um so you have something that's more of a, a lab synthetic as opposed to sort of a, a plant that's been grown um for thousands of years. So I don't think you're going to see the the same approach to it that, that um, cannabis has had to take with social equity uh, just because of the history around it. It's it's that much more of a departure away. Um, there is still going to be a, a stretch um, in terms of public understanding around destigmatizing this though. Uh, and, you know, how, how are we going to approach the research around it? Um, what needs to be done in, in terms of federal policy in order to make this a safe and efficacious uh, approach to public health. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's probably going to be more of the push in terms of letting the research lead on this first and foremost, um, before the conversation about um, any kind of decriminalization comes in. Michael, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that, you know, you mentioned that a lot of Silicon Valley money is pouring into the industry. And I think that much of that's fueled behind uh, the FDA approach, uh, you know, getting these substances through clinical trials, actually determining what therapies and what ailments that they're going to address, and then going through the actual product life cycle of that. So I think that the, the parallels in cannabis, although you know, from a regulation standpoint, how it's secured, how it's transported, uh, how licensing d- is done, 
so many parallels on that level. But I think with taking more of a clinical therapies approach with psilocybin, with psychedelics in general, I think that will be the backbone of the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I would like to build on that too, because that's a good point, Michael. Um, I, the, the industry around psilocybin and psychedelics um, has more of a pharmaceutical approach and mindset to begin with. Um, and I think that it will probably be slightly easier for them to tackle the, the, the tremendous effort needed to do clinical trial research um, to the, uh, to the point that it's, it's more receptive, uh, more appropriate for the federal agencies to understand. Um, and that will just sort of uh, spur regulation a little bit faster um, and probably legalization. Yeah, on average, it's half a billion dollar venture to get a, a product through clinical trials. I don't think a lot of people understand the lengths that you have to go to to get there, but it is incredibly costly, and especially if you don't have government money coming into it. And you know, private equity is one of your you know, main solutions. Right. And money is really what's kind of making the world go around. A lot of people in cannabis has forgotten about Charlotte's Web and how the visual of seeing the girl Charlotte stopping with her seizures was one aspect. But really, when the money came through, that's when everybody forgot about the girl and just realized that there was a lot of cash to be made. And they kind of forget about Charlotte. In the uh, psychedelic industry, there's 1.8 billion that was raised from startups and public companies and private investors in 2021. And that was to fund research into the psychedelics. But those businesses still have to demonstrate that they have a viable business model. So experts fear that psychedelics will fall exclusively into the hands of big farm and the industry will follow the same path as is cannabis, which is making the rich get richer. Will magic mushrooms give investors an experience of a lifetime or just a bad trip? Michael? Well, being a psilocybin investor myself, um, I've, I've already started to look at publicly traded companies. Uh, last year, the, the, the volatility was intense. I mean, you have companies like Compass, MindMan, um, Atai, uh, these, these companies are amazing futures, but you know, making that revenue model move faster is you know, kind of where the precipice is of you know, having a viable company and a viable product and where that meets. And I think that the long-term strategy is intellectual property. Like, how do you position to get an FDA product approved and then that being the go-to therapy when other uh, therapies don't work? So treatment-resistant patients that have tried other means and just can't get over that hump. There just needs to be, you know, a few charlottes of the world, whether it's, you know, psilocybin as a a therapy or uh, one of the other uh, known psychedelic uh, therapies. But I think that that's the exciting part is... It only takes that one great story to really change perception of the, of this drug. Can I can I ask a follow up question for you, Michael? Um, does the, the the psychedelics industry do they have the same difficulty that the cannabis industry has in terms of safe banking? Is that so? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great question. And you know, if you look at where psilocybin is in the United States in general. You know, federally, it's still Schedule I narcotic. But like cannabis, there's states like Oregon that have, are are just scratching the surface on state-run facilities, Mm -hmm. which it'll be more of 
uh, a therapeutic experience where you know, a, a licensed facilitator will uh, consult with patients in a certain environment, uh, you know, using psilocybin as a therapy. Uh, and, you know, they're just, they just published the first round of rules. So, you know, they'll be accepting applications in 2023. And is primarily where Quantum 9 uh, you know, focuses is the licensing and then, um, you know, helping with the business planning. And then uh, through that, then if there's any M&A activity there, uh, thereafter. But really, that's, you know, the, the, the big scope of it. Are they having issues um, getting their accounts shut down, like bank accounts? Yeah. yeah, so there there aren't a ton of companies that are doing this yet in the United States, uh, other than the ones that, uh, you know, there's Canadian companies that are doing it. But uh, it is a Schedule One narcotic, and they will face the almost identical banking issues. So where cannabis, you know, avoided FDI-insured uh, uh, banks, uh, they're, they're, you, the only avenue there are local credit unions so i think that that's going to be the tough part but again it was the bank's due diligence on you know finding out what these companies did and you know if you're uh if your focus and your website is more on the clinical trial end it's going to be a lot harder for uh you know, uh, a psilocybin company that's that's creating a therapeutic uh, product to to lose their bank account. It's not unheard of, but it's less likely than a bank account that says, you know, pot shop kind of LLC, you know. And is the process with the DEA the same in, in terms of um, getting a license to to utilize the product? So in Oregon, they're not requiring DEA, uh, you know, a special license to do that. It's, it's actually state run. So much like cannabis, where there's this disconnect between federal legalization and state legalization, you're starting to butt into that industry. So where this illicit market, which has been thriving over the last two years, is really starting to move into a more regulated market. So out of the black into the gray, just like cannabis. And soon, you know, you're going to see, you know, sweeping changes. You know, we're one of 50 currently. So if you look at it from that standpoint, we're right at the precipice of the industry where much like cannabis, it's the, the, the slate's blank, you know, insurance, you know, banking, these things we haven't even started brushing the surface on it. You know, once uh, Oregon starts licensing these these facilities and, you know, there, there could be complaints and so forth, that's when the stories start to happen and, you know, you start to lose bank accounts and these things for mainly uh, irresponsible operators. But I think that the way that this is being set up in Oregon, it's going to be the opposite. You know, they're, they're the... They're, they're taking every opportunity to make this a clinical product. And, you know, the backgrounds of the facilitators, the way these sites are set up, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot different. Speaking of licenses, Kaya Holdings, they're seeking a license for the first ever state legal psilocybin manufacturing and facil facilitation service center in Oregon. What do you think is going to be the potential price tag by comparison to cannabis counterparts? We've seen limited licenses in like Arizona go for $20 million per location. What do you think um, is going to be the, the financial price tag of a license in the uh, psychedelic industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it really depends on the model, right? You know, some of these companies that if, if it was license only, the way they're, they're getting those huge, you know, 10, 20, 30, 60 million dollar price tags is the scarcity of licenses. 
So in a state like Oregon, where there is no cap on the number of licenses, that's where the valuations start to drop a little bit. Then where, what's the other end of it? If it's not just the license, you know, it's the other side of it, which is the revenue generation or the intellectual property that's created. So, you know, an FDA approved product versus a product that's, you know, state based that hasn't gone through all clinical trials. You know, what has stronger IP? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, long term, you know, the FDA approved product could, but in the short term, branded products seem to have a higher revenue stream immediately. So I guess that is the question. You know, for me, I mean, I believe that it could be worth, you know, day one license could be worth anywhere from one to 10 million, depending on, you know, what license types uh, that you have and if you are vertically integrated with all the, uh, the, the different types. And are, are social equity um, are, are considerations and part of the licensing for for this market too, or no? So you know, social equity is tough, right? Because you know, at what time have things become legal is the real focus, and you know, how do we affect those that have been negatively affected or disproportionately affected by the drug, uh, you know, the war on drugs? So. Well, you don't have like like you were saying earlier, we, we don't have an overwhelming number of people that are incarcerated for psilocybin. You know, what is the actual impact of providing social justice? Like, you know, there there, there will more likely be uh, regulations that allow those that have uh, that have. Uh, you know, minor possessions in the future have those in a more recreational sense. You know, although, you know, there's aspects of this in this industry already, you know, is it going to be a huge focus? Maybe, but more likely less than you would think. Mm. Uh, Sarah, I got a question for you about the regulation. I'm in Seattle. So Washington psilocybin bill would legalize supported adult use. The passage of the act would enable the Washington Department of Health to issue licenses to psilocybin manufacturing facilities, testing labs, service centers, and facilitators, and create the Washington Psilocybin Advisory Board to advise the department in creating rules for the act's implementation. There's a growing number of states that are considering bills to expand research and access to psilocybin. How could magic mushrooms follow in the footsteps of cannabis regulation, Sarah? Well, I think uh, we'd have to think about everything from age limits um, to packaging and labeling um, and to sort of go down each of those pathways. And then, and then you know, you would be looking about what about infusions into food and beverage? Um, what would be the restrictions there? Um, sort of like guiding the, the regulators on what are the unintended consequences and how can we address them preemptively? Uh, and I think that's that's what you, what is informative about the cannabis industry is all the questions that have to be asked around these products. And, and again, also impaired driving, um, you know, uh, public service campaigns about appropriate dosing. Um, what is, you know, I, my understanding of, of the psychedelic market too is a lot of the, if you're not talking about microdosing, if you're having a, a, a trip or you're going through a guided meditation that's meant intended to be therapeutic in its, in its value, um, oftentimes that requires a guide or somebody who can kind of walk you through the, the experience. So I, I, I think, you know, looking at this from both the public health and safety realm as to you don't want bad products proliferating on the market, how can you regulate that? Um, all the way up to, you know, what is the intended um, medicinal purpose of this and how can you regulate appropriately for um, people who are seeking this um, both for medicine or for therapy? It seems like they're going to be doing similar, um, kind of following the footsteps of cannabis with uh, the 
distance from churches and schools and and things of that nature. Uh, Michael, you kind of seeing the the layout being basically just carbon copied from cannabis into the psychedelic world. Yeah, I mean, before cannabis was, uh, you know, all of the regulations for cannabis, cannabis borrowed a lot of regulations from uh, the security industry for uh, casinos. So like you saw this in Colorado when, uh, when, when they were at the, the forefront of the industry, you know, where else can we borrow regulations from? You know, who wants to start from scratch? Nobody. So yes, there's going to be tons of overlap with you know, how things, you know, seed to sale tracking, inventory tracking, security, transport, um, you know, environment. Uh, those are all so very common and, you know, Oregon's taking a lot of things from cannabis, but why not? You know, this is uh, it, the, the, the model is already set up for something uh, in which, you know, there's there are uh, public health issue concerns with adverse events uh, in the psilocybin industry. Uh, there's a, a term called set and setting you know, your mindset going into uh, uh, an event, uh, a therapy and then uh, the setting that you're doing it. So where Sarah was mentioning, you know, a shaman or a guided meditation individual, like that, I think is what is now required and will be the standard on how these medicines are delivered. But, you know, that framework is, you know, really starting, I believe, in Oregon currently, which will then set the stage for Washington, uh, probably Colorado. I've seen some stuff in Missouri, Connecticut, like they're all following similar paths. But, you know, the facilitator model that has a certain uh, background experience, I think, is uh, is one that uh, will stick. Michael, have, have you um, heard the term psychopharmacology, too, with um, with people who are sort of um, combining? Uh, it, it's sort of a, a burgeoning field for pharmacists to get into where they're they start to prescribe, you know, what would be THC or psilocybin or, you know, anything that's along the line of a, of a psychoactive um, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you see kind of see a world, I'll give you two scenarios, and these, this is just a hypothetical, like one world where you would go to CVS and you would have both your regular pharmacist and your and your psychopharmacologist um, who you could ask questions about, well, what should I be taking for a microdose? What kind of, what should I have X percentage of THC and CBD for whatever? Um, or do you see more of a world where you have dispensaries with um uh, you know, people who are trained to a certain degree in pharmacology, but it's not necessarily a medical requirement. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, pieces of that already exist, believe mm -hmm. it or not. They're compound pharmacists. Uh, you know, before, uh, you know, you're seeing trials now with ketamine. Uh, prior, they, they were already using it in some settings. So, I don't think that it's going to be a a la carte type of menu like, hey, you know, I as a compound pharmacist say, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think it'll be more so there needs to be a clinician that is involved from start to finish so that the adverse event cycle doesn't start. And if it does, having, you know, a, you know, a nurse or some somebody on uh, on site that can help that individual uh, come out of their adverse event and into an environment where they feel safe again. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, panic attacks, adverse events like that, you know, high blood pressure, you know, these things are not uncommon in the illicit market. So you can only imagine that in a regulated market, 
this could be something that may be of an issue. But again, you know, it depends on the patient. What experience are they trying to derive? What therapy are they trying to get to? Is it like a microdose scenario or are they really trying to break through? And that breakthrough is sometimes, you know, it, it, it's a journey to get there. I saw an article that said uh, the DEA backs down and will not criminalize five psychedelics. So that's kind of where we're at. And where it started was a 2004 pilot study from the University of California in L.A. exploring the potential of psilocybin treatment in patients with advanced stage cancer managed to reignite interest and specifically renew efforts in psilocybin research, heralding a new age and exploration for psychedelic therapy. You have universities that want the uh, neuropharmaceutical market and Wall Street wants it. But how much of the influence does Wall Street's capital have and lobbying on the industry as you're seeing biotech firms funded by venture capital buoyed by promised research to treat a variety of mental health issues? And is that a good thing? Sarah? Uh, that's a complicated question. Um, I, 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 I would think that... Um overall the the creation of a new marketplace like this is a genuinely good thing um and i think driven by by an intention to do quite a bit of good for people who are suffering from um anxiety ptsd any type of uh, uh psychological issue that could be solved through um through new and alternative therapies. Um, and that, that can go along with cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga, all sorts of things kind of combined. So I think the the shift in the marketplace is, is clear to me. Um, and it, it, is, it is one of those situations where entrepreneurs and investors will, will kind of lead the charge. Um, Wall Street will follow. And then it will be a slow pace, but you will see uh, the regulators and the administrations um, begin to follow, you know, sort of follow the money as it as it um, can can be proved. Now, I think a lot of this is going to fall to the research um, side of this to make sure that safety efficacy is proved um, and that the research is good. We have, we, you know, we say it at, at CFCR um, that you know good science leads to good policy. And I think if you really are following the science on this um, and you see what the what the potential is um, and what the opportunities are, then you've got a win-win situation for both um, helping with mental health crisis, um, helping people through you know, very serious psychological um, impairment um, and helping them kind of lead better, more productive lives that in turn will inform how we regulate around this um, to inform good policy. Michael, do you think that there's a chance that this industry could go schedule two? The, the cannabis industry is really worried about pharmaceutical industry, big pharma getting hundred uh, percent control of cannabis. Is it more likely that that could happen with the psychedelic industry? So, you know, you use the term big pharma a few times and uh, I'm wondering if, you know, where, what your definition of that, you know, do you consider like a compass or a mind man? Do you consider that big pharma? Or are you talking about like the deposits of the world? Like where, like where in that do you, uh, do you consider that? I guess is my first question. Yeah. And, and Josh, I'd, I'd add to that. I mean, I think 
of a concern with the cannabis industry even before you get to the big pharma as, as the MSOs too. There's there's sort of like a whole bunch of tiers here that we have to work mm -hmm. through. Yeah, like for and just uh, I'll let you answer that question. And I'll, uh, yeah, and I, I think I can answer both of those. I would consider MSOs and MindMed is like this this middle stage, and so you have big pharma as like the 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 top capital, and you have these. Uh, players who want to become big pharma and they've completely built out their entire advisory board to be like Tilray, for example, they want to be bought by big alcohol, big tobacco, big timber. They don't care. They want to be bought by somebody large and that's why they're just a mediocre company. So when you look at big pharma, I'm talking about the big DuPonts of the world, Pfizer. Yeah. So, so I feel like the cannabis industry has got a taste of that. And as a result, it's shifted a little bit. So if you look at canopy growth and how Constellation, Big Liquor, you know, started to make big moves in there and they really got bit hard from it. So do I think big tobacco, big liquor, you know, do, will that be the consumer of all of these types of companies? Probably not. I think these MSOs are really going to be the ones that are gobbling up all these companies because they already have the model. They already know what they're doing. So to, for a, a larger company to come in and, you know, take over everything, it's probably less likely than a middle-sized player becoming a large player and then becoming an even larger player. So now you have these giant MSOs that are merging uh, and being, you know, a, a larger conglomerate. So I think that uh, the big pharma, uh, play is probably going to be more towards the FDA uh, clinical proven uh, tr you know, through tr clinical trials companies, whereas, you know, your organ based companies that are, uh, you know, at the front lines with, you know, treating patients with facilitators, I think that that in its own ecosystem will grow like the MSOs did in campus. Yeah. And, and I'd add to that too, that I, I think um, going back to this sort of psychopharmacology, I think you may see some very unique, very large companies that um, become the size of big pharma, big tobacco, uh, you know, uh, and alcohol that, that, uh, that just grow out of this new industry too. So you're actually going to have a, what is, you know, big psychopharma companies essentially that will, will grow out of it. You'll have a whole, a whole new division here that we can worry about. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the, the, the companies that are practicing in this space already, I mean, they're not just limiting it to psilocybin, you know, MDMA, uh, yeah. LSD. I mean, all of these are, you know, going to clinical trials now. And it's an exciting time because, you know, before LSD was, uh, you know, criminalized and, you know, the, it was, the, it was a therapy for many people and the experiences people were having, the breakthroughs that people were having, it was just, uh, for lack of a better word, incredible. So I think that we can probably get there again. It's just that, I don't know, how do we change public perception in a positive way while allowing these therapies to mature in a responsible setting with responsible operators? We all need to figure out who Michael Pollan's investing in. <laughs> uh peter till invested in uh uh i believe it was my uh uh a tie so follow that money i think it was uh, like it was Speaking a couple of years ago money, I, I, i'm curious about lobbyists that don't want this to happen so with cannabis you could look at 
Um, you know, the, the timber industry not wanting to compete against hemp. You can look at big alcohol, big tobacco, big pharma as kind of not wanting to compete against cannabis. Um, with the psychedelic industry, what's the equivalent? Is is coffee lobbying against it because people can microdose and, and not drink coffee anymore? I mean, who is against psilocybin at this point? I mean, I'll throw my two cents in there. It'll be the direct competitors of the products that are, aren't working for them. So for instance, depression, anxiety, PTSD issues, those types of mental health in, indices, uh, industries where the, the patients are treatment resistant. So instead of going to try these methods and then go to the, you know, the, the last ditch effort, that may be a first ditch effort. And if that workflow happens, then those are the companies that'll be most effective. I'm not going to throw any names out there, but we can all make a, a guess on that. Yeah, and, and I think you, you don't want the pharmaceutical companies, they they don't necessarily want to shoot themselves in the foot either. So there's there's the potential that they may gobble up a lot of these companies and then just shut them down too, because they've already prioritized and spent billions of dollars on their other drugs. Uh, and I think that's that's a valid concern, um, both for this industry and for the cannabis industry is, you know, we there's already billions of dollars being spent on the market on these other drugs. And how do we keep this from, you know, becoming the, the next number one? Yeah, sir, I would agree with you, but there's a certain point where I believe that, uh, yeah, I'm just going to speak out a little bit with, you know, the types of companies that I mentioned, I don't know if they would allow that to happen. So in this industry, mm, What's more important, helping people or money? And I feel like the people at the helms of those ships wouldn't sell out. And I hope I'm right, but I just, the feeling is different in this industry, I believe, than, than before. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people were going to uh, say no to money, but that's my personal opinion. I guess we're going to have to wait and find out. Where can people find you at? Michael, where are you at? Uh, where can be, if people want to get more information about you or Quantum Nine? Where are you at? Yeah, quantumnine.net is our website. Uh, we we work in the psilocybin and cannabis space. Uh, we've done incredible work in the cannabis licensing space and regulatory spaces already. You know, helping regulators understand cannabis and such. Uh, so quantumnine.net, and uh, I'm located here in Chicago. Perfect. And then Sarah Chase, you're the executive director for the Council of Federal Cannabis Regulation. Where can people get a hold of you if they want to talk to you some more? Yeah, you, well, you can email me. It's it's Sarah with an H at uh, USCFCR.org. You can also go on our website, which is www.USCFCR.org. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, and but you know, reach out and email me. Happy to talk to anybody at any time. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with another panel. Uh, but with that, I want to thank Michael and Sarah. Both of you guys are awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great weekend. We'll with that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, 
and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one talk at a time. 